Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. You know success when you see it, or you think you do, the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Live from our nation's capital. How do we reopen this economy? The latest on how this pandemic is impacting farmers. What does this do for the United States relationship with China? Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. We're responding to this crisis and manufacturers are stepping up like never before. We're looking at 70 candidates for different vaccines. How do we make sure a pandemic of this scale never happens again? This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin. Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. Jam-packed hour. Greta Van Susteren is going to kick things off following her exclusive interview with the president of the United States. What did President Trump have to say about the virus? Reopening the economy and the conventions. Are they headed for a smaller scale? Plus, the latest from Secretary of Health Alex Azar, my exclusive interview. And Lester Munson will join us as well as we talk about foreign policy, and a reset of U.S.-China relations. We have a lot to get through, all of that coming, plus another one of my interviews uh, with Javita Carranza. She's the SBA administrator, first time ever on Bloomberg TV and radio in her new position. All right, let's kick things off with the one and only my good, great friend, Greta Van Susteren. Greta! You had the interview of the day yesterday. You won the day. You got the exclusive with (laughs) President Trump, and you made news. What would you find out? Well, I found out a number of things, surprisingly. I mean, like, you know, Kevin, you've been around the block. You know how this is. Some days you have have good interviews. Sometimes you don't. You only get about 10 or 12 minutes. So it's like, you know, this is one of these days where I just got lucky. Um, He talked about possibly moving the convention. This was after it had been moved from North Carolina to Florida. And that's the first time he showed some sort of thinking that maybe he'd have to move it because he wants a giant convention. Uh, I asked him how he reconciled the fact he's very proud of the fact, and I I use the word proud, that's where I use, that the uh, mortality rate has gone down in COVID-19, which is in 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 the United States, which is, that's what the recent numbers are. Um, but then you've got Dr. Fauci saying that we are in deep, deep, deep trouble. So I asked him how he reconciled that. So he spoke a little bit about that. My, always my favorite issue, because it's, uh, I'm fascinated with it. I've been to North Korea three times. Um, he said that he was, he was open to another summit with Kim Jong-un. Now, that is actually big. Now, North Korea has you know, said, no, we don't want one. Um, President Trump says that North Korea is asking for one. But, you know, while we are consumed with COVID-19, as we should be, as we're consumed with it, because it's very serious, people are dying in this country, 
Um, Kim Jong-un has been, is doing what his father did before him and his grandfather, and that's work on a weapons program. And so we've got our eye in the media. I think we have our eye a little bit off the ball because their nuclear weapons program and delivery system is moving forward. So I asked him a little bit about that. Yeah, um, but that's not a Trump problem. That's a every president problem. It's really remarkable. I mean, and you just laid the outline there. I want to unpack on COVID just for a little bit more okay. because what President Trump said and what Dr. Fauci is saying, I'm noticing some space between them, Greta. What do you make of this? Um, you know, look, this is a problem with COVID-19 um, is that there's so much uncertainty. And uh, I, I think Dr. Fauci would tell you if he were here is that his job is completely with the health of the United States, you know, the healthy American people, which indeed is. The president's got sort of a dual role. He's got the health of the American people. Of course he does. But he also has to worry about the economy of the, of the American people, because if we don't have jobs, we can't feed the American people. So they have a little bit different roles and different perspectives in this. And bottom line is that none of us knows what to make of the COVID uh, of, of coronavirus. I mean, even look at some people get red toes. Some people get no symptoms. Some people get life-threatening lung issues. Some people die from it. Some people have strokes. There's so much that's unknown that, you know, as I, I think we're all sort of in a state of confusion. And, I, you know, I, I wish I had a magic wand to get rid of it, as you do, Kevin. But I don't, you know, I, I, I would expect between everybody there is some space and confusion as to what to do. Greta Van Sussion's on the line. She interviewed President Trump yesterday on a wide variety of topics. What did he have to say about China? Uh, he doesn't like China, but I can tell you that going back to I've interviewed President Trump going back to when he was, you know, Mr. Businessman, Donald Trump, back in the beginning of about 2000. He has always said, quote, China is ripping us off. And we used to always sort of make sort of a joke about that. I probably shouldn't say this, but almost like have a drinking game because you'd be talking to him <laughs> about one topic. I could be talking about France and all of a sudden he would, inject, in, you know, interject into the conversation and China's ripping us off. I mean, he's always, always, always been on China. And um, and so he's not happy with China. He was talking about whether or not he will shut, whether he will ban TikTok here in this country. And Secretary of State Pompeo said that earlier, but President Trump, obviously, is his boss, said it to me in an interview. And that's important because TikTok, according to President Trump and according to a lot of people, is collecting data uh, from the users and and providing it to the communist Chinese government. So he may he may ban that, but he is not a fan of China. Never has been. Um, obviously, underlying all that, we have a trade war, a trade, you know, so. You know, if, if uh, diplomacy were always so easy, it is not. So, you know, take a step back. And this is something that, that you do so incredibly well. I would argue one of the best in the business. Take a step back and give us a behind the scenes look. How, how was the president's mood yesterday? And not in the sense of the polls or whatnot, but is this a president who is looking to really break through and, and get back on offense? Is this a president who appeared tired? I mean, what did you make and what was your takeaway from that vantage point uh, during your interview and after? Well, he certainly didn't look tired. And remember, he was on his home turf. It's like, you know, when uh, when uh, the Chicago Bears come into Lambeau Field, you know, we're pretty strong. You know, we pack Not as strong as you the know, Eagles I at the link, but go <laughs> ahead. Yeah, I loved it when we got Reggie White from the Eagles, by the way. Oh, <laughs> come on, Greta, stick with the, the exclusive. Stick with the exclusive, uh, Greta. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, so he, he was certainly strong.
wrong? I mean, look, every time you interview the president, this one or anyone before and others, you tend to get a little sound bites. I mean, when I asked about the economy, I got a very predictable response about it. I was interested in small businesses and, and their survival because a lot of these malls are going under and these brick and mortar. And he was quick to point out that um, the stock market was doing well. Well, not everybody's in the stock market. You know, it's great for people in the stock market, but not for everybody else. So, um, he, you know, he dodged me on that. And I wanted to go deeper on it. But the problem is I only had 10 minutes, so I didn't go deeper on it. Um, but he was certainly... You know, he was certainly feeling confident. Um, you know, it's uh, he, this is this is not a man who has never shown that he's not certain. I don't I don't think I've ever seen him uh, look uncertain. Whether he's right or not is a whole other issue. But he's a man who always exudes sort of a sense of confidence. Um, you know, so I, I don't you know. But this was his home turf. He was not at my house. I was at his. Got a great or job. The people's house, but. <laughs> The people's <laughs> well, great job. Yeah. Uh, and if people want to watch it, I, I tweeted it out earlier this morning. And of course, it's on great television affiliates all over the country. Greta Van Susteren, of course, uh, breaking so much news in that, teaching us all how it's done. Greta, amazing, amazing work. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Kevin. Bye. And next time we'll Bye. play our game. We play this game called the quarantine game. That's oh, it. I actually wrote out a bunch of questions. I got a bunch of questions. Okay, well, we'll we'll catch up about that later. And next time you're on, maybe we'll maybe we'll right. give folks a, a little hint of what the quarantine game oh, is. Oh, such a it's great fun. game! I was at McDonald's oh, over the weekend, and I called Greta. Here I am eating my French fries, and I called Greta with our other mutual friend, and I said, "We we got to play the quarantine game." And she's like, "Where are?" Oh, and it's it's questions like, "If you could only eat one food in quarantine, what would it be?" If you, historical figures. Anyway, I'll, I'm going to pivot now. Oh. Let's, I've got 50 questions that I actually wrote on my iPad. I'm ready to go. So let good, me know. good. All right, I'll call you later, Greta. Thank you. All right, Thank bye. you. Bye. Uh, all right, bye. now let's pivot. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Yesterday, I spoke with Secretary of Health Alex Azar about a wide variety of topics, uh, including uh, really about whether or not we're going to get a vaccine. So let's just roll tape on the interview. Here is Secretary of Health Alex Azar. And I want to ask you about this executive order that uh, Chief of Staff Mark Meadows talked about in terms of prescription jug pricing. Can you give us any details? Well, uh, I make it a business to not preempt the president <laughs> or the chief of staff. So uh, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave any actual announcements uh, to them. But suffice it to say, the president has been deeply committed to getting prescription drug prices down. We've approved historic levels of generic drugs. drugs. Um, we've seen prescription drug inflation flatten from where it had been uh, before he before he took office and before he laid out the blueprint, where it was, I think, about 5 percent on average inflation to now we're basically flat, 0 percent inflation. But he remains committed to leveling the playing field internationally and stop foreign free riding where they don't, where other countries don't pay enough for their drugs and we pay too much uh, to ensure that we decrease what people, especially our senior citizens, pay out of pocket for their drugs. And he's deeply committed to the concept that people should have the freedom to get their drugs, import them from abroad if they can get them in a safe, effective way that reduces their cost. Well, that's what I want to follow up on, because we, we he, there's also been some reports about potentially more executive orders as it relates to uh, to manufacturing. And I've been having conversations with administration officials on the economy as well as protecting the domestic and international supply chain. And that includes, as you're alluding to, Mr. Secretary, that includes uh, prescription drugs. So how how does 
that what what needs to be done in, uh, between the public and the private sector in order to protect people's medicines, especially if they are parts of it is made internationally, like in China. Yeah, so I think that the coronavirus pandemic has brought home that core elements of our medical supply chain are just as strategic to our national security as, say, nuclear submarines or aircraft carriers are and have to be treated uh, with that same kind of approach, which is to make sure we have core domestic manufacturing capabilities. Now, that means paying for that. That does mean that uh, right now we've seen the supply chain uh, go to low-cost areas in the world, um, as well as areas that have protectionist trade policies that lead to lower prices of goods. Um, so it might mean that we have to use um, our powers under the Defense Production Act or otherwise to fund and incentivize domestic manufacturing to ensure purchasing here of domestic manufactured products so that we essentially um, support and defend a local, domestically-based, strategic focus around pharmaceuticals as well as personal protective equipment. Can I can I ask you one more question? Do you have a, a, a timetable on that executive order? I just I want to know if, if we're going to get it in a couple of weeks, a couple of days in terms of big pharma. Uh, well, I don't have a timetable for you again. I'll leave that to the president yep. to make a decision on when he uh, when and whether he's going to do anything by executive order. All right. And just and, and just more broadly, I, I it's so many questions that I get uh, from folks outside of the industry, outside of Washington, is they want to know about vaccine development. They want to know that when there is a vaccine, when there is an effective treatment uh, and vaccine, that that everyone's going to be able to get it when they want. Can you give us a, an inside account as to how the vaccination process and what the government's doing to make sure that people can get that vaccine once it is in the market? Yeah. So the first thing we have to do is get vaccine and get vaccine manufactured and ensure that it's a safe and effective vaccine according to the FDA's gold standard regulatory approval processes. So we just had an important announcement today uh, where we are investing in a fourth in, a fourth vaccine candidate. This is Novavax's protein-based vaccine, $1.6 billion for advanced R&D as well as advanced manufacturing to secure 100 million doses of the vaccine. So what are we doing with whether it's our relationship with Moderna or the AstraZeneca vaccine or the Janssen J&J vaccine or now Novavax? Um, we are funding the R&D to make sure that we compress the timelines, any inefficiency in the development timelines, not sacrificing standards, but just ensuring that we're avoiding any types of unnecessary delay on development. Uh, so uh, that taking the pharma timelines that normally you would get, say, phase one data, you come, you sit down, you study it, you spend time, then you design a phase two or phase three trial, um, and instead compressing that, have that pre-designed, have that so you can go right away. And then on manufacturing, make the investment to scale up commercial manufacturing to deliver hundreds of millions of doses, even as you're doing the development trials to make to, to, to prove that the vaccine would be safe and effective. Um, so what we're also doing is the distribution work is, of course, as you mentioned, critical. So 
Uh, we are working internally, and we will engage external stakeholders in a process to advise on as we get more limited supplies of vaccine out. So in the fall, as we get, say, tens of millions of vaccine and scale up to the hundreds of millions of doses of vaccine in early next year, um, who are the first groups that ought to be vaccinated? Uh, that'll be an ethical process. It'll be a public process where we gather input to help make those determinations. And that right there is where this story is headed, regardless of who wins in November on November 3rd. Uh, there will likely be a vaccine in the market uh, by the end of the year and in the first quarter of next year, ramping up hundreds of millions of different vaccination tests is going to be fascinating. All right, switching gears now. I'm Kevin Cerilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio. I want to go over to Hong Kong. I spoke with Senator Chris Van Hollen, a Democrat from Maryland, earlier today about the Hong Kong autonomy bill that was passed in the House and the Senate recently. Take a listen to what he said about when President Trump could sign it. I hope the president signs it just as soon as possible. Uh, he should have signed it uh, the day it arrived on his desk. Uh, my understanding that he now has until early next week uh, to sign it. Uh, Senator Toomey, uh, who was my co-sponsor on this legislation, and I uh, had been urging them uh, to put the president's signature on there as soon as possible so that we can send a strong signal to Hong Kong uh, that we're going to stand up uh, and support those who are demonstrating for democracy and their human rights. And from a financial perspective, what specifically would this do uh, for businesses, especially U.S. businesses who might have some business dealings in Hong Kong and who had largely seen that as a democratic uh, a safe haven, so to speak, in terms of demo sharing democratic values? Well, this is designed to target uh, officials in the government of China or others uh, who are collaborating in undermining democracy in Hong Kong, specifically uh, those who are complicit in violating China's obligations uh, under the basic law and other agreements uh, that they've reached. It would also then uh, sanction any banks who do business uh, with those individuals. The idea being that uh, for those individuals who are complicit, uh, we want to cut off their financial uh, lifelines. And so this is a very important uh, signal, uh, we believe, uh, and action, and I hope the president signs it right away. Senator, one of the conversations that's being had openly within the administration, as well as amongst some thought leaders here inside of the Beltway, is about whether or not there are other financial avenues that the U.S. could explore in relation to Hong Kong, particularly with Hong Kong's dollar peg. Is that something that the United States should explore? Well, I think it should be explored, but I worry about taking actions that hurt those in Hong Kong uh, who are advocating uh, for freedom and democracy. You know, we need to be careful uh, not to use a, a shotgun and do damage uh, to those uh, who have been advocating uh, for more autonomy and certainly for freedom of expression uh, in Hong Kong. So. I would prefer to take the kind of actions that uh, Senator Toomey and I in the Senate and the House uh, have proposed here, which are very tough, hard-hitting sanctions against those who are responsible uh, for denying uh, you know, democratic rights uh, and human rights uh, in Hong Kong. I I'm open to considering other ideas, but uh, I, I want to make sure that we're hitting those who are complicit uh, in these uh, bad decisions. 
And just to go more broadly beyond just Hong Kong, but in terms of the U.S.-China relationship, uh, as you know, there is a, a, a bipartisan group of lawmakers. You're one of them who are really every day taking a look at a host of different tools in terms of U.S. foreign policy as it relates to China, as it relates to Beijing. And so I, I'm curious what the next step would be, maybe even in the fall is what I'm hearing, about other avenues that could be explored. Can you give us a preview of some of the bipartisanship uh, avenues that are being explored? Well, sure. Uh, we've also introduced the bipartisan legislation to protect uh, U.S. intellectual property uh, by imposing sanctions on those who are really serial violators uh, of intellectual uh, property uh, theft. And we think it's very important that we uh, not allow the wholesale uh, theft of U.S. intellectual property, and that we have tools available to set up in advance uh, so that if you're a Huawei or a ZTE uh, or the next version of, of one of those companies, uh, you will know that uh, you will be penalized uh, for uh, undermining and stealing uh, U.S. Uh, technology, cutting-edge uh, innovation. So. That's one of many. We also need to look at uh, a, a variety of other tools. And as you said, we're in the process of doing that. Switching gears now, just t talking more broadly, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has suggested that he would like to see another round of economic stimulus advance ahead of the August recess. The president has also suggested as much. Are, are you optimistic that, uh, that a bipartisan package with a trillion dollar price tag is what we're hearing the White House limit that they want? Are you optimistic that that can happen before the August recess? Well, we really should have done this uh, before the July break uh, to give the American public confidence uh, that we're gonna continue to uh, help the economy uh, you know, through this very difficult period of time you know, we have a president talking as if this pandemic uh, is long past, uh, when in fact it's very much still with us, as are the negative economic consequences. But I do hope that as soon as the Senate reconvenes, uh, that we take up the HEROES Act passed by the House. Now, I know Senator McConnell says uh, that's a non-starter for him, but he needs to put something on the table. I mean, it's been a lot of talk from Senator McConnell, uh, but we haven't seen any particular proposal. We've heard a lot about what he doesn't want, uh, but uh, we haven't seen what he supports in terms of economic uh, relief. So uh, I hope we can get it done. That, that was Senator Chris Van Hollen, a Democrat from Maryland, uh, speaking uh, earlier today uh, to me on Bloomberg Television. Uh, I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. And we just got word here, folks, from Christine Barada, the news never stops. The news never stops. Abigail Spanberger tomorrow. Congresswoman Spanberger is going to join us, Democrat from Virginia, and Corey Lewandowski. Corey's calling in. Remember him? Trump world. That's tomorrow. Coming up next, Javita Carranza of the Small Business Administration. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. 
The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services and claims, the Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business demands. At the Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how the Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. Halfway through the week, folks. Keep on keeping on. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. And tomorrow we're going to have Corey Lewandowski, senior advisor to President Trump's re-election, and Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger. Democrat from Virginia. So we're keeping the conversation. I want to continue the conversation with the Small Business Administration's director, Javita Carranza. Take a listen to what she had to say about transparency with those PPP loans. Play tape. We've just received some of the data about who has gotten access to the PPP loans that have been out there. Now, there have been some criticism, as you know, that it was the politically well-connected uh, that, that were able to get access to this. What is the administration doing to make sure that any small business that needs and qualifies for those loans is able to get it? Well, Kevin, I'd like to start out by saying that the PPP has proven to be very successful. It has actually achieved its two objectives, which was uh, job retention, wage growth, all in one, and then also sustaining of small businesses. And the PPP has saved nearly 5 million small business enterprises. So those are the data, you know, the data points that I always look at. The fact that we processed about $520 billion and, and saved, and this is the other data point I always uh, stay focused on, we, we estimate based on the entry on all of the loan applications that we've saved an estimated 51 million jobs. And I also looked at the fact that of the funding, if you look at the data very closely, you notice that most of the loans were made um, about $150,000 and less. Actually, I look at loans that are $5,000 to $20,000. And we have provided funding for, I would say, 45% of the loan volume and value of the loans really went to low-income uh, counties. And that's why, as I traveled throughout the United States, I visited those particular communities and, and the businesses that have been hit the hardest, Kevin, like the restaurants yeah. or the manufacturing. And, and Javita, I, I want to ask you uh, specifically about some of the criticism about the data that has been made public. Democrats have raised concerns that, uh, that the, the smaller size loans have not yet been disclosed, loans that are, that are fewer than $150,000 for those approved loans. Why, it, why is that information considered proprietary or confidential? Kevin, that's an excellent question, because as an administrator of a small business administration, I take um, my fiduciary responsibility very seriously about protecting proprietary and confidence and uh, competitive information. And the smallest of small 
smallest businesses like the sole proprietors or, for that matter, the independent contractors. I always use this as an example, Kevin. Here you have a woman, single parent, uh, single parent who's an Uber or Lyft driver, and her home address is her business address, and she's applying for something like less than $5,000. That is very confidential information, and that's the information that we were trying to protect when we were very specific about what we would release and what we wouldn't release. Um, you know, the GAO office and the congressional oversight members, they've received information um, that's unique to their particular um, requirements, but as it relates to the public information, that's why we protected certain, certain loan values. And and beyond that, just on Saturday, the president extending uh, the deadline for PPP loans, I believe, until August 8th. And there, I think it's $130-plus billion worth of remaining funds for, for small businesses loans. Do you think, if, if that money isn't, isn't uh, used up by August 8th, where do you think that will go, and what is the best way to appropriate the leftover funds specifically to target, to really micro-target some of these small businesses, micro-businesses even, around the country that are the backbone of, of, of America's economy? Well, Kevin, let me answer the, your question twofold. The president took historic action and very focused on small business, small businesses and their employees, and he made available hundreds of billions of dollars. We've already processed a half a trillion dollars worth of funds for small businesses. You have the data. And so that represents, again, I can't emphasize more, 51 million jobs. And if the 125, over $125 billion that remains and that's available through August 8th, we're really focused on continuing to provide funds for sole proprietors and independent contractors, because, Kevin, many of them were apprehensive, and some of them returned their loans. And so we are encouraging for these particular businesses to work with their local lenders, and we have over 5,500 lending partners. And, Kevin, you'd be pleased to know that there are more CDFIs and credit unions applying to be uh, authorized so that they can provide PPP loans, because it's a forgivable loan. As long as a small business can demonstrate that they've used their funds to retain their employees, as well as their operating costs, that, that's like a win-win proposition. Yeah. The yeah. loan will be forgiven. So I really expect maybe a slow intake, but um, definitely more businesses, unique businesses, will be applying for these loans. Again, <laughs> over $125 billion in the PPP loan portfolio, but also we have the disaster loan portfolio, which is called the Economic Injury Disaster Loan Portfolio, the COVID. That has, I'm going to say, about another 80 to $90 billion available for small businesses. I just have a so couple more questions. We're busy. Yeah. Yeah, I know you are, and that's why I want to be very respectful of your time. And I've just no, got no, a couple more questions, because sure. as as Congress gets rolls up their sleeve and tries to to get to some type of, of another round of economic stimulus, and the president has come out and said he wants this. Mc, Leader McConnell has said by before August recess. But what do you think are some creative ways to target? micro businesses to target these mom and pop shops and I don't like using that cliche but these small town 
uh, businesses. What are some new ways that we can we can help those businesses um, in the next stimulus that you'd like to see? Yes, Kevin, there's a lot of discussion uh, in the negotiations currently. We've submitted some of our recommendations to them concerning our uh, what we call the flagship um, loan portfolio, which is the 7A, the 504, which yep. really focuses on manufacturing and it focuses, focuses really in the underserved communities where 60% of their employees have to come from that community. So we're really interested in the 7A504 portfolio in the community advantage. Uh, we've also looked at our uh, federal procurement, our government contracting office, and then they, they're also, there's also other um, considerations on the table. We're, we definitely are listening to all our small businesses and the chambers and the trade associations on what they believe would be necessary to, to again, assist these small businesses to weather this particular storm. This pandemic was only supposed to last two or three weeks, uh, Kevin. That was the first lifeline. And then it was expanded to the second tranche of funds, which we now still have 125,000, I'm sorry, 150 billion uh, available, all in SBA. So, Kevin, we want to make sure that the small business community continues to thrive like they did pre COVID pandemic, because I'll give you a couple of statistics. The Hispanic women small businesses and the African-American small women small businesses were the fastest growing small businesses pre-pandemic. And they were significant employers, and they definitely represent half of the GDP in the United States. That represents something like 10 to $11 trillion. So I hope that brings in an appreciation why this president is so focused on small businesses and this entire administration's focus on small businesses uh, because they are such a um, essential um, economic fuel engine into our national uh, economy. That was the administrator of the Small Business Administration, Javita Carranza, uh, speaking on a wide variety of topics. And coming up next, we're going to check in with Lester Munson to talk foreign policy. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio, and you're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. Programming note, I want to give a shout out to the Bloomberg Radio Sound On team. Marufal for doing the audio. Barada for dealing with me. Matt Shirley, <laughs> our booker. Uh, <laughs> it's a team effort. It's a team effort to do these things, you know, and I'm grateful to be a part of the team. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Bloomberg Radio. And uh, I want to welcome back a good friend of the program. His name is Lester Munson. Uh, and he is an insider. I mean, there's really no other way to describe him. But he's an insider for all things conservative as it relates to foreign policy. He's a principal at government relations firm BGR Group, the BGR Group, uh, and he used to work for the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Bob Corker. What's Bob up to these days, Lester? 
Uh, hey, Kevin. I think he's um, uh, enjoying the private sector, probably making a lot of money. He's a terrific businessman, and uh, I think he's happy in Tennessee. He's also a grandpa a couple times over, and I think he's enjoying that new status. That's always fun. You know, I'm a little too young to be a grandpa, but you always hear <laughs> that you always you hear. Yeah. <laughs> You always hear that it's a it's a good time. Okay, what's on your radar? Because you know, I was talking. I thought Greta's interview with President Trump yesterday was just absolutely spot on the mark. I mean, she made so much news, but but on foreign policy. And then you get this news of the TikTok, and we we were joking about it. Oh, you might ban TikTok, but I mean, there are some national security concerns, especially when Chris Van Hollen. You heard it, Democrat Maryland Senator Chris Van Hollen is saying. That there's some bipartisanship with some deep skepticism rooted in the Communist Party of China. Yeah, it's hard to tell these days uh, because everything seems so nasty and partisan and uh, kind of dark that there really is a bipartisan approach to China, which is probably the biggest foreign policy issue we're dealing with today. And both parties are pretty much in the same place. They're very skeptical of Beijing. They're skeptical of these companies that... Uh, you know, owe a certain fealty to the Chinese Communist Party. And I, I don't see where the brakes are. We're kind of on a, a runaway train um, of folks who are criticizing China and Chinese companies. This is this is going to continue to get worse. So when you're advising your clients in terms of where geopolitics are headed between now and 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 the fall on the issue of China, the, the 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 Hong Kong bill and the sanctions against officials who are doing business with them is just the first step in terms of the policy arsenal that is at folks' disposal. They could really decouple Hong Kong's currency from the dollar, and that would, uh, from the benchmark perspective, and that would really, really be ratcheting it up. Senator Van Hollen, in his interview with me earlier today, as a key Democrat on this, was very skeptical based on the conversation that I have with him about doing that. But Bloomberg is reporting, my colleagues on the White House team, that there are some folks in the administration who are, are advising him to take that step. That's just another leverage point that the U.S. has, is it not? Yeah, absolutely. The U.S. has a lot of tools in the toolbox. Um, a lot of these things, though, are better to talk about and hold out as threats rather than to actually execute on. And so... What it would be good to see from the administration and, you know, call me crazy, it'd be great if Democrats in Congress could work with them on this, is to think about a comprehensive strategic plan to engage the Chinese, to pull back a little bit from Hong Kong, leave the freedoms in place there, and, and maybe say, we don't want to have to do these things, but we will if push comes to shove. Now, maybe a little late for that. Uh, uh, China's taken a lot of steps in Hong Kong that may be irreversible. Uh, but it'd be nice to see the administration use the leverage it has to get some concessions rather than just kind of knee-jerk imposing a bunch of sanctions immediately and not really getting anything for but it. But Lester, I mean, and, and I, I really cannot wait to, for you to respond to this because the, the, the whole framing of the U.S.-China relationship over the last several decades has been that democracy, lowercase d, and American capitalism would help pressure the U.S., to get, or I'm sorry, would help pressure China rather to, to become more like the Western part of the world. And what we're seeing with their actions with Hong Kong, what we're seeing with their lack of transparency to the, to the international community for COVID-19 is just, is, is not that at all. And so I, do, do we, I guess, how does America, whether it's a, a Trump second term or a Biden 
ter- or, or a Biden president administration. How does America reset from that? Well, it's already happening, uh, right? Um, one of the one of the primary drivers of of the phenomenon you're talking about, and you're absolutely right. That was the U.S. position for decades. One of the primary drivers of that was the U.S. business community, which uh, was making huge investments in China, was promoting U.S.-Chinese ties. Uh, it was good for China. It was good for the U.S. At least we thought so at the time. And, uh, you know, everyone was prospering. And let's face it, there's a lot of good news. Uh, hundreds of millions of people in China were lifted out of poverty. Uh, it was economic growth like we'd never seen before. Uh, the U.S. economy prospered as well, maybe not quite as much, but it, it was mutually beneficial for a long time. That's, things have changed. The last 10 years, uh, the Xi Jinping administration really taken a different tack, and the business communities responded. What they're seeing in China with uh, violations of intellectual property, with a failure of any kind of objective rule of law, the failure to protect foreign investors – has changed the business community's outlook on China. That's a, that's a big change in Washington the last five or 10 years is the business community is no longer promoting the bilateral relationship. Instead, they're promoting skepticism of the bilateral relationship because of what they've seen happening in China. So this, is, this has been a long time coming. And, uh, and I think what we're, what we're seeing now is really the result of the last five or 10 years, a lot more, uh, a lot more, of a hard-eyed look at the way Chinese policies are really hurting American businesses and the American economy. Lester Munson's on the line. He's the principal at the government relations firm BGR Group. He previously served for the Senate Foreign Relations Committee Chairman Bob Corker when Corker was in office. Lester, what's on your radar? Maybe it's something that we haven't spoken about, uh, but what's on your radar for for this week uh, that, that hasn't gotten a lot of attention? Uh, so we're still in the middle of a pandemic. It's a it's a worldwide <laughs> epidemic. Uh, you know, we're we're hopefully um, getting you know taking baby steps towards a more normal economy. But a lot of other countries in the world, developing countries, are starting to struggle with this. You're seeing African countries, Latin American countries, Brazil could be the next big hotspot. The U.S. needs to play a leading role in that international response. We need to make sure it's not uh, China that's doing it or Russia or the Iranians. We need to be taking advantage of this opportunity to demonstrate how our values of human rights, democracy and freedom are, are better than the alternative. A lot of that's pretty easy to say, but we got to execute. We need to be helping these countries. We have the wherewithal to provide the assistance that can benefit them. We should have a robust foreign aid program that helps our friendly countries that are friendly to us and poorer countries uh, deal with this pandemic in a way that sets us up to be a better global leader when we come out of it. It's self-power, too. I mean, Lester Munson uh, of the BGR Group, uh, thanks for for joining us. I appreciate it. Uh, It's self-power, too, folks. I mean, everyone talking about it from the Peace Corps perspective, from the Pompeo State Department perspective, to Marianne Williamson. From, and, and what she called for, a Department of Peace. I mean, it, it, that vacuum, that power vacuum of, of America needing to lead Love the way wins, on that. Kevin. Love wins. Yeah, That's well, right. Yeah, exactly. All right. Thank you, Lester Munson. I appreciate that. Speaking of uh, Marianne Williamson, it's her birthday today. Happy birthday, Marianne Williamson. And coming up tomorrow on the program, Corey Lewandowski, as well as Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger. 
Uh, one of the things that's on my radar is former Vice President Joe Biden, Democratic nominee. He will be unveiling an economic plan tomorrow. I promise you we will have continuing reaction on Bloomberg Television and on Bloomberg Radio. We just got word we're going to get former Commerce Secretary uh, Penny Pritzker. She's going to join us on Friday. So you can l- watch for that cross-platform on Bloomberg TV and radio. I'm telling you, Bloomberg Radio Sound on Team does not stop working for you so that you can get the policy and politics news coverage that you deserve. Thanks for listening. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio to Bloomberg 99.1. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.